This is WEMF Radio. WEMF Radio. WEMF Radio. WEMF Radio. WEMF Radio. WEMF Radio. WEMF need a medical marijuana recommendation like I did? Do what I did. CanacareDocs.com. Compassionate, compliant, and confidential. Go where I went, Mike can, to get my medical recommendation in Massachusetts. CanacareDocs.com. If you're suffering like I am from back pain, or maybe you have MS, post-traumatic stress, seizures, AIDS, cancer, glaucoma. If you're suffering from pain like I am daily, call CanacareDocs.com. It's a much safer way to go. No opiates. You want medical legal cannabis? CanacareDocs.com. Convenient, nine Massachusetts locations, Peabody, Quincy, Waltham, Brockton, Stoughton, South Dennis, Cape Cod, Fall River, and Worcester. Also, I forgot, Seekonk, also in the states of Delaware, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Maine, and coming soon to New Hampshire and New York, it's CanacareDocs.com. Get your medical recommendation, get legal, CanacareDocs.com. We're live, welcome the Young Jerks, WEMF Radio. Uh, my name is Mike Crawford. Welcome to the show. Running a few minutes late, uh, as usual. There's, it's snowing. Uh, a few programming notes uh, definitely wanted to bring up. Oh, Herbie, you did get the screen going. One less thing for me to complain about today. Uh, but I do have a few things I definitely want to uh, get off my chest and uh, a few programming notes and then get right to the big show that we have here uh, on you know, on the on WEMF Radio or our Facebook Live, The Young Jerks. Uh, you can find us there um, and our guests and who's in studio and all that. But uh, first of all, I just wanted to uh, make note. I don't know what we're going to do around here on uh, the station when in Boston there's nowhere to park. Where We've moved to Brighton now. If there's a snow emergency, I don't know what we're going to do. I mean, uh, we're going to have to actually cancel, cancel shows, it looks like, sometimes if it snows. I'm like... Uh, in the past in Cambridge, and uh, I'm with Tom Shattuck for once. He's got an issue about Boston parking. Uh, we've had Tito Jackson in, in here a number of times, and this is the one thing I'm going to note, uh, the difference between having a show in Brighton and a show in Cambridge is that parking is a much bigger issue, and uh, it's my beef of the day. I don't know. We're going to have to talk to Crespo. I don't know. We're going to have to do a Kickstarter to get us a parking spot so we don't have to cancel our show. I don't know what we're going to do here. But uh, that's one B for the day. Um, that's uh, that's about it, though, because I'm pretty happy. I mean, we got uh, sponsorship again from Canica Docs. Uh, the show cover is covered definitely till uh, March 31st of 2018. Uh, so we're very happy about that. And we also have uh, money coming in from our Patreons. Our Patreons uh, were definitely listener supported. So I want to thank all of them. Um, and I also want to note, uh, we, we have a big, uh, story that came out, uh, that I, uh, wrote up a roundup, uh, uh, for Dig Boston, uh, on Massachusetts cannabis, uh, reform over the last year, uh, the news, the legalization, uh, movement, uh, the fight for the initiative. And a lot of it was, uh, recapping things that happened on this show and, uh, things that actually happened from the show, like, you know, after s somebody would s come on the show and say something and then something would change. Uh, sometimes it might be as simple as the dispensaries adding, uh, new programs that would help veterans more, you know, things like that were happening. Uh, so I'm very thankful, uh, that we have this show and that we continue to have this show. Uh, sometimes it was elected officials and sometimes it wasn't that came on. Uh, 
we, we, we've broken a lot of news on this show this year, and I'm very happy because we're going to continue to do that. Um, but I wanted to make sure I make note today that uh, some people have noticed recently that uh, Lauren Pespiza and Warren Lynch are no longer uh, here uh, like they were every week. And, uh, yes, we have made a little change there. Um, we still love them. We still respect them. Uh, they're our friends. We love them. Uh, and you may see them back here again, but uh, we've just decided to ch- you know, kind of change it up a little bit and uh, try some new things. So on that note, and we still love them. So we have, you know, and I want to th- especially uh, thank Lauren too, because she's been, she was here, a big part of the show for a long time now, and uh, she's given us great service. So, you know, definitely uh Big love and and big support to Lauren Pespiza. So I just wanted to finally make note of that. Now that I'm done with all that programming notes, another programming note is that we have uh, uh, we've been promising something coming up. Uh, Cannabis Control Commissioner booked uh, last show in January coming up. Shalene Title is going to be coming in studio. Definitely looking forward to that. And we're working on some other big things too. So we're going to have a lot of guest announcements. Uh, just like we have a big guest sitting right next to us right now, we're going to uh, bring on the show. Uh, we also have uh, Brian Riccio over here. Hello. You're here. I can't hear you, a mic. Nope. Can't hear you, Mike. Nope. I don't know if it's my headphones or your mic. Say it again. The mic. The mic. Yeah, so maybe you get over and jump over on that mic. Try that one. Because Herbie ran out of the studio. He's got uh, three shows going in a row. They don't give him a bathroom break. So he takes a break on our time, which is another beef of mine this week. He needs help. We need to get him some studio help. And now I'm moving. This is my problem. I'm, I'm going to give you the phone number now, even though, Herbie, there's no one here to answer the phone. 617-903-7464. If you want to call in in a few minutes uh, to maybe ask a question to the guest we have right here. So we're going to introduce the guest. Um, We have a guest who is running, he's a Democrat, running for governor of Massachusetts. There's a big election coming up in 2018, which is just a couple days away, 2018. The election isn't, but uh, it's coming up, you know. It's not that far away. People seem to think it is, but it's really not. Um, And we have an incumbent Republican, so uh, the Democrat is definitely going to have a a campaign here in progressive blue Massachusetts. And... uh, he definitely has, this person definitely has an opportunity to be that person to represent the Democrats here. Um, and I've heard his life story recently on some of the other shows. Uh, WGBH, Jim and Marjorie talked about him recently. Uh, Alex Beam, who I, who I mostly loathe, <laughs> really did like him, actually, and, and told some good things about him, uh, which was funny. I but, told uh, yeah, uh, that's but, a, that's a long story. <laughs> uh, Bob Massey uh, running for governor. Welcome to the show. Give you a real round of applause. Thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So uh, tell us about, I mean, you uh, you have a remarkable story. I mean, number one, I just like uh, age, I think you were age nine. Is that right? 1966? Uh, yeah. yeah you right. met Muhammad Ali. I did, yeah. That was an amazing story. Um, well, <clears throat> just to start right off. Uh, I want to hear the Muhammad Ali all right, story. Because right, right. uh, I'll tell you, that's like one of the big ones. It's right. like, they say the greatest of all time now about Brady. I'm like, no, no, no. The greatest Muhammad Ali. Well, I'll tell you the story. I was uh, born with a, uh, an, a difficult uh, a genetic illness called hemophilia, and that causes bleeding in your joints, not so much cuts, but in your joints. And as a result, uh, when I was a boy, I had a lot of trouble walking. Eventually, I lost the ability to walk. I was in leg braces in a wheelchair, and you can there's a, a photo that you're looking at of me talking with Muhammad Ali, and you can see that I'm in a wheelchair. The story behind that is that my 
uh, parents were journalists, and they were very close friends with the, uh, the, the famous African-American photographer Gordon Parks. Mm -hmm. And Gordon's wife, Liz, uh, was my mother's very close friend, godmother of my uh, sister. And I was home a lot because I had trouble walking, and the schools at that time didn't really make it possible for a kid with a disability to go to school. And uh, Gordon had been asked by Life magazine to do a photo shoot of uh, Muhammad Ali over a week. And so they, he went with uh, Muhammad Ali to many, many different places. And he realized that most of them were uh, black communities and institutions like gyms and nightclubs. And, and he wondered what it would be like to uh, bring Muhammad Ali to this middle class white family. And then they also wanted it to be a surprise for me because I was lonely and frustrated and so forth. So they just announced uh, guess what? Muhammad Ali's coming by, which was quite of a shock. And he showed up, and I had been, he had just moved to Muhammad Ali from uh, Cassius Clay, his name changed. So I was told, Mr. Ali, Mr. Ali, Mr. Ali. And he didn't even give me a chance. He came up the front steps and he said, Hello, kid, I'm the heavyweight champion of the world. <laughs> and uh, he sat there, and he was an incredibly good listener. You know, we, he's famous for how wonderful he could speak but in that case he really listened carefully to, uh, to me as a as a young kid and when he left I have to tell you that I was too embarrassed to ask him for a uh, an autograph but I did ask him if he could show me his biceps because right. he's a you know, huge man and I remember that he rolled it up and showed it to me and I I don't think I'll ever forget that image in my mind but it was uh, one of those things I grew up with parents who were writers and we knew a lot of very uh, uh, different kind of people and politically active and artists and writers and musicians and so forth. So this was just one more piece of a of an unusual childhood. Wow. Parents were intellectual. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, it's amazing. Story. Did you know, like, did you, did you, like, did you realize who he was at that moment? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, no, he was very, very famous at that right. time. And, you know, also, I can't remember if it was exactly this time, but, you know, he was uh, refusing to... Uh, uh, to uh, enroll exactly, but enlist in the draft, right? Or whatever, sign up for the draft, so right in the middle of everything, right? When, That's a year, he, 1966. Yeah, That's so when, he was barred from boxing for two years, and uh, so he was very controversial. Well, people but, hated him. Well, man. some people did. A lot of people did. Uh, some people did. Like they hated a, uh, Kathy Griffin. And, like they, they hate people of Colin Kaepernick right now. Yeah. Well, when people point to painful things in society and ask us to look at them, a lot of people would rather not. And you know, I have to say, partly because of my experiences like that, my own childhood. I mean, I have been a lifelong activist for social justice, economic justice, racial justice, because uh, I learned from an early age that people uh, are very quick to reject people who are different, and therefore it's extremely important to stand up for quality and inclusiveness, and, and, and I think those core principles that, that should be at the heart of, uh, of the United States. And sometimes we do a good job at that, and sometimes we don't. But, but I believe that you know, it, is, it is our responsibility, and it's, I have to say it's sad that this many years later we're still fighting fundamental issues like uh, racism and discrimination, but, but that's our job. That's what we have to do to keep, uh, to, to keep true to our values. So that's, that's one of the reasons I'm in this race. We have a, a very dangerous president who's trying to divide us and build hatred among different people and exploit our fears and our angers. And uh, uh, we have a governor, I don't feel, who's doing enough to object to that and who is not setting us up for uh, not only to resist uh, this uh, Trump onslaught, but, but to really lay the groundwork so that regular people who are struggling across the state can get the jobs and the education and the, and this is the basic building blocks of a good life. A lot of people are struggling today. We need to fix that. I want to ask you, uh, 
we had Seti Warren in here, uh, Newton Mayor, who's also running for governor in the Democratic primary against you. Um, one of his issues that he's been bringing up and getting some traction on a little bit from some of the media anyways, and here at least, uh, is uh, asking for an independent investigation of the state police, the uh, state police gate scandal. Yep, yep. yep. Uh, do you agree with that? Like, where do you stand on that? I, I do agree because I think it raises a lot of troubling questions about uh, uh, about transparency, about whether things get swept under the rug, about whether people do favors for each other at the top. And, uh, you know, sometimes we know they do, but sometimes it really crosses a line into being uh, uh, protecting someone who's powerful, in this case, the daughter of someone who's powerful. And um, of a judge. I, a po- yes, daughter of a judge. If daughter, people don't know, this is right. uh, Massachusetts. It was a... Uh, State police basically uh, officers sued their superiors because they were asked to change a police report uh, dealing with a judge's daughter who uh, had some drug issues, and right. it came out. It's a big scandal, and uh, people are getting sued, and uh, you know it seems and, like and it goes pe- to the governor's office. That's right, and the, and and also the, you know then that the uh, people responsible have retired and have retired with uh, benefits and so forth. So, I mean, it's uh, I think. Uh, uh, that whenever you have a situation like this, then they crop up regularly in government everywhere, but where it looks like somebody is using their special power and influence on behalf of someone and going outside of our system of justice, you have to have, uh, you have to clear that story up. And so I, I think uh, we definitely look into it. And just in general, I think that the uh, Baker administration has failed on many points of transparency. We don't know what the core report that they did uh, their initial internal report said, and they don't disclose many documents about deals that they make, and they are uh, running uh, lots of very uh, close conversations and negotiations with big companies that have long-term consequences for this state. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, one of the things I'm deeply committed to is a much more open, much more democratic process where we can really see what's going on and, and make it the people's business and not so much the elite's business. You want to go, Brian? Can I ask you some of the companies that you uh, that the Baker administration is? What I'm most concerned about, actually, and we're about to release some additional information uh-huh. about this, is uh, is the relationship with the utilities. Okay. Uh, we have utilities now that are um, uh, deeply committed to maintaining uh, our our commitments to fossil fuel and pipelines, and really to slowing down 100 percent. Uh, clean renewable energy, which is where the world is going, where the economies uh, around the world are going. Um, and here we spend $20 billion a year bringing fossil fuel into the state. And that's a real burden on families, you know, just me paying that electric bill or on small businesses or on communities and so forth. And we could be weaning ourselves rapidly off of this. Um, but we have a governor who, because uh, he has some uh, strong ties, he's put... Have you looked up any of the... Well, I one, mean, I'm sure there are... The, the well, one of the things he's done there. is... It's not so much about contributions. It's okay. more... I mean, there's always that. Right. And the governor relies on donations from, from corporate leaders to uh, fill his war chest. But uh, what's, I think, even more troubling is the idea that he has put people who favor uh, fossil fuel, who come from fossil fuel backgrounds, both in his administration and on the Department of Public Utilities. And then there are these various obscure organizations like the group called ISO New England, which actually figures out how we buy and sell energy that are totally biased towards maintaining. It's a very simple idea. They have all of this old stuff that they want to keep making money off of. It's a lot easier to make up money off of old things than it is to invest in new things, particularly Mm -hmm. if you are paid, if you are given a return on basis of the stuff that you build 
that follows the old model. So right. one of the things that uh, I would do as governor is that I would uh, clear out the Department of Public Utilities so that you had a group of commissioners that understood how critical renewable energy is to jobs and to the future of our economy. It's the greatest economic opportunity, the greatest opportunity to undo some of the economic uh, uh, injustice. In the history of Massachusetts, we should be rushing towards it and embracing it instead of slowing it down. We're slowing wind down. We're slowing solar down. And uh, that's the opposite direction we should be headed in. Interesting. Uh, I got uh, another question, totally yep. uh, different field, but it may be similar in a way. Because you know, I'm, I'm working on a story right now that's going to come out in the next couple of weeks mm -hmm. um, that deals with uh, marijuana. And specifically, a lot of us have seen, you know, even my year-end review on it, there's a fight between the big money that runs a lot of these dispensaries yeah. and the rest of us in the community that want to see it actually, you know, that locals, that working class, that people of color, that people that have suffered here, that have fought for these laws, actually right. get to run the business and open their own business. But the hurdles are so high that the only folks that are, have been able to get in they have a lot of money, and uh, their products just aren't as good. They're getting killed by the gray market. A lot of uh, the people that we know are still not fully licensed. Would you support uh, kind of like this craft, the smaller, less regulation, less money to get into the cannabis industry over the big money that's there right now that wants to just own everything? They're the existing big dispensaries that paid millions of dollars to get their licenses. I'm uncovering a story. It's... You know, it's multifaceted, but there's a lot of campaign contributions. There's a lot of hiring from the DPH for your dispensary, that type of thing going on. Pay-to-play politics. Where would you stand in the cannabis industry? Well, first of all, I just want to mention, you know, I, as I said before, I have been committed to fundamental questions of uh, economic justice for a long time. Uh, I went to uh, divinity school many years ago. I was ordained as an Episcopal minister back in the 80s, and I worked very hard on uh, on focusing on what kinds of things bring prosperity to local communities. And it was because I was interested in that question that I did something rather strange, which is that I applied to and was admitted to the uh, doctoral program at Harvard Business School. And I did a degree there that focused on how investors, in that particular case, made decisions about what to do about the South African apartheid system, which I've worked many, many years on that. My point is that I am a strong supporter of local business. Because local business requires talent and energy and uh, vision. It's hard running a small business. They generate jobs. And we should be uh, working, doing everything we can to support small businesses of all different kinds, whether they're proprietorships, whether they're local cooperatives, whether worker-owned cooperatives, all the different uh, forms that we have. On the other hand, I am very um, unsure about the impact of some large companies that can step into communities, blow away small business, uh, take over the opportunity to create jobs, take money out of the local economy, and shoot it to their shareholders and up to Wall Street. So to answer your question, from the beginning, I have been saying uh, I would like it if the legislature um, had, uh, in working through all the detailed problems, if they had given a preference to local ownership and particularly worker-owned ownership so that you could spread that wealth and you could establish these new models and provide ownership opportunities for people who are so often deprived of them um, and uh, who, I think, could take this shift in our laws and practices and gain. But if you have, you know, basically the cigarette companies or the others come in with an enormous amount of clout 
and uh, capital, but, and then they use that force and their own predatory pricing and so forth. They can wipe out the small uh, distributor, and then they take control of it, and they reap those profits. Those profits don't stay in the local community. They get sucked up and shot to the shareholder and, and back off to Wall Street again. Um, by the way, which is also part of the problem with our utilities. Right. Our utilities are monopolies. They're supposed to be um, operated in the public interest, right. and yet... Isn't it the same issue in a way? In some ways. It's funny, because I mean, at marijuana, the issue that I see right now is all the local small guys that we're talking about, yeah. they're illegal right now. They're still there, and they have better product, better service, better selection. I'm going there. I, I helped pass the law. I had right. a card. I didn't... Uh, why do I want to go to a dispensary and get worse product for shady people? It's like... These guys, you know, so that's the issue well, is that it's like we, we need to legalize all the small local guys because they're still there and their products oftentimes are better. And we're seeing the DEA bust some of them recently, which is another issue. So this is a big issue for us. Let me re even refine it more for you because I think you're, you've already answered it. I just want to make sure people hear, hear yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. If you had a choice between... Um, investigating the big players that exist right now for the shady things since the dph gave them no oversight didn't actually do its job for years we've been it's going to be proven completely in this next story it's already kind of proven people understand it in this community um over uh making it sure that the micro brew the micro grows that the uh co cooperatives the veterans groups the craft cannabis gets the least oversight you know the the kind of the, the support it needs to really happen right. as law. Which would you support, A or B, or uh, both? Well, if I understand your question, I mean, do you give uh, the attention to the bigger to the smaller? The big yep. can take care of themselves. Um, uh, and I don't like giving tax breaks or special advantage or anything like that to companies that are already making hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Uh, we should be supporting small local business in all its forms. And that leads to the larger reason that I'm running which is I believe we really have a fundamentally upside-down economy now. So we have uh, inequality of wages, and it, you know, we've seen productivity go up, 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 and we've seen wages stay flat. Normally when productivity goes up, that extra wealth should come back to communities and boost wages and allow people to live a better life. That is not how it's working now. Right. It's getting sucked out of communities. Um, and as you, as when you look at it more closely, you see and you know this well, and I'm sure your listeners do too, that we're moving toward the gig economy where people are working as subcontractors. They don't have benefits. They are forced to work part-time. Um, you know, you, this is spreading into every industry. In universities, you see many of the faculty are now adjunct and don't have any ability to uh, uh, really build a career out of that. You see that in the service industries. You see that in the restaurant industry where people are mistreated and where their wages are pushed down. Um, and when you combine that with an inequality of wealth as well, so that you can't afford, it's impossible to get into a decent education if you're starting with a very little amount of money. It's possible to buy a house. These things are really undercutting the core uh, American community of people, not the wealthy, but regular folks who for years have relied on the idea that they could get a good home and a good school and a good doctor and a good job all of those things, those building blocks of a good and fair and sustainable and just economy are falling away. And then as you go into each different industry, you can see how that's happening, whether it's in cannabis or energy or housing. But you see where markets are not working for regular people, 
they are generating wealth for others, and so we need to create new institutions, new practices, and the good news is they're already there. I mean, I used to be president of something called the New Economy Coalition, which is 200 groups working on ways to generate local economies that can't be, where jobs can't be exported, where people are building small service industries or agricultural uh, um, um, products, many, many other things that allow people to prosper locally rather than giving up and being crushed uh, and letting everything go into some big multinational that then takes the money out of the community. That's, a, that's something we have to face in this state. I believe I have the background of uh, working on those questions with real success, and uh, now we need it in a governor. This governor um, is really focused on the community that he knows best, which are the large uh, uh, corporations and the elites who have a certain perspective on what it is to have a healthy economy. But it ignores many of the people in low-income communities, communities of color, working-class folks, uh, whose jobs are getting harder to hold on to or even disappearing completely. And that's a, that's a long-term problem that we need to address. Now, you had uh, this hemophilia. Right. But you don't now? Is that correct? Well, here's the weird what, thing. What happened? Yeah, here? yeah. It's a, it's a strange story, but I have to tell you, it's the kind of story that when you go through it, it kind of affects how you see life. Mm -hmm. um, so born with this thing, difficulty, you know, couldn't walk, gained the ability to walk because my parents, who were writers, moved to France for a year, and we discovered that because they believe healthcare is a right, I would be covered under the French health insurance. Smart move. Uh, well, and, and that meant I could get out of these braces and walk again. So that's one reason I'm such a strong supporter of uh, single payer and health care for all. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, after going through my career and various things, I discovered those same blood products had given me HIV. And so oh, wow. uh, that was in the 80s. And at that time, if you had HIV, it was considered you weren't going to live for very long. And uh, so uh, I, I knew a lot of people who uh, died, and it was a time when America had one of its moments of uh, where it didn't show its best side. There was a uh, real discussion of taking everybody and shipping them with, who had HIV uh, in mandatory quarantines. Um, yeah, and they it shows you, know, you what people can be like. Well, it, you know, it shows what can happen when we are uh, overtaken by fear, and when we have fear mongers encouraging that. There was a family that had a young son with hemophilia that lived in Florida and just because he had hemophilia they burned their somebody burned their house down mm. but the good news is over time our medical professionals and many others really came together and helped uh, each other and helped all of us get through that epidemic and then for me the particularly strange twist is after 10 years I discovered that I had a genetic resistance to HIV so I was going to be fine and I didn't know that, uh, but then I discovered that. And then I went through one more uh, element, which is I got hepatitis. That injured my liver. I eventually got a liver transplant. And when I got the liver transplant, everything cleared up, including it cured my hemophilia. So I'm now actually in better shape than I've ever been in my whole life. I'm fired up. I have all this experience of uh, tackling these core structural problems around the economy and around the environment. Um, you know, I've, 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 led, I've created and led organizations in the country and around the world. And uh, I believe that as a really bold progressive, this is the right time uh, to be uh, stepping forward. And I'm uh, hopeful that people find that uh, I have some qualities that might be of use to them. I mean, I want to bring people together and tackle our deep structural problems in our economy uh, that have to do with, in many ways, 
capitalism, which has some good qualities, but kind of running out of control now and running all over people on a regular basis. We need to make some corrections by strengthening and democratizing our economy. Let me ask you about health care, because yeah. you've been... Uh, <laughs> You've been, been part of healthcare. Been, You've been involved there. Been through the mill. Like I'm wondering how much you 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 had to pay and how much was covered on the uh, on the liver transplant. And beyond that, like one of the big issues uh, that was brought up, I can't remember if it was Evan Felchuk or someone else. And I think it was another Republican actually. Uh, uh, no, uh, Evan's not a Republican, but uh, he's actually a Democrat now. Yeah, he'd but, be upset if he. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I think it was another person who was actually a Republican. But someone had brought up something I really like was. Uh, a lot of these healthcare chains, especially uh, the big one that we have here, Partners, you don't know what you're going to pay for any surgery when you go in, even if you have health insurance, and you don't know what's covered and what's not. You, they may bring in an extra extra person in, and that person's not covered under your network, and then you get billed for the whole cost when you didn't even know. I see this happen all the time to people, and then they get a huge bill, and they didn't realize it was supposed to be covered. Um, is there a way that we can help people have some transparency in pricing so that they, they know what it's going to cost yeah, before I, they sign on the dotted line and what's actually well, covered and what's not? Because it seems like people get bankrupted by healthcare procedures. Well, there's a couple different pieces to what you just said. So one is that uh, that the whole idea that consumers, that patients can really drive down costs is a fantasy. It's a Republican fantasy based on the free, their understanding of the free market. But I can tell you, as somebody who's been loaded into an ambulance, uh, you know, I was in a car crash a number of years ago, and I wasn't badly injured, but when they're loading you into the ambulance, you don't say, hey, wait a minute, what's this going to cost? And if you take me over here, how much is that going to be? And how much, maybe I should go to the other hospital. And, you know, that just doesn't happen. Um, and you never know. So that, that's the, the whole idea that somehow the patient is going to say, uh, well, gee, doctor, you told me I should get this drug, but I should get that drug. I mean, it doesn't work. Secondly, uh, there's a lot of price shifting and a lot of uh, just outright profiteering. We have uh, pharmaceutical companies that are charging us many, many, many times what they charge other patients in other countries. And that's because many of our abilities to negotiate lower prices were removed by Congress, who are in many cases in the pocket of the pharmaceutical companies. Other measures, like being able to buy those same drugs in uh, Canada, are limited. So there's many upward pressures and very few lower pressures. And we also waste an unbelievable amount of money on administrative costs because the basic concept of insurance does not work. Insurance is supposed to, you know, you take 100 people, you don't know what's going to happen to them. You sell them insurance to, let's say, keep, you know, fire insurance. You don't know whose house is going to burn down. Sadly, if someone does, well, they get the money. But if you knew in advance whose house was going to burn down, you'd say, I'll cover everybody but you, because we know we're going to have to pay money for you. And same thing now with healthcare. When they can check your genetic history, your medical history, your pre-existing conditions, they can say, oh, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cover everything except what you need. Yeah. We're not going to cover you. You know, if you're a woman and you have the BRCA gene, we're not covering you for breast cancer. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to, if you're born with hemophilia, we're not covering you for that. Do you see that coming out of the Republicans? Yeah. Well, no, that's, that's the, you know, that was why. Uh, there was this huge debate over well, what, covering. What can you do, though, as governor on the on the cost? Because I think uh, that's still a big issue is that the premiums are up, the, the cost for the prescriptions is crazy, and then some people are, still aren't covered. There's, there's right. still well, those people that are, have to pay out of pocket, and the, 
Like, what can we do about this just ridiculous cost on healthcare? Well, one first thing we can do is uh, we can negotiate. I mean, and I'm pleased to say, you know, this uh, legislature, our Senate, has just passed an important health bill that includes a formal review of the cost of shifting to single payer. And I believe that if we were able to move to single payer or a version of universal care, you could, by guaranteeing uh, coverage, you could negotiate with the very large hospitals like Partners and others uh, on a much more even, much more fixed payment. They would be assured of getting enough money, but they wouldn't be uh, doing what they do now, which is using a huge amount of market power to charge as much as they can. And uh, to be fair to them, they do a lot of cost shifting inside, like trying to cover people that don't have complete coverage. But that's not a great system. It also leaves our smaller hospitals in, in significant uh, danger. Mostly you need a governor who understands how critical this is to the life of the average working person. Because right now you have people who cannot afford their premiums, who are constantly being worried about being excluded, um, and who in many cases are uh, uh, one illness away from bankruptcy because people don't have a lot of reserves and these prices are uh, so uh, so uh, completely out of whack. Uh, this particular governor's his entire career has been in the medical and insurance area, so he is very committed to this model of private um, insurance companies, uh, private in the sense that they are for-profit insurance companies and some non-profit insurance companies, uh, dominating the market and determining how cost is, uh, is a proportion. Uh, to say that this has been solved in every other country, sometimes with a direct single-payer system, sometimes where you have insurance companies that uh, are guided by the government, uh, which is in some ways what the Affordable Care Act is about, which, by the way, was originally a Republican idea. So to watch the Republicans kill what had been their solution to the problem just because it was... Uh, recommended by President Obama is particularly shocking. You're talking about the Heritage uh, I, Foundation's original ideas for uh... yeah, they, they, this idea that you would uh, you would allow insurance companies to have a role in providing comprehensive care, mm -hmm. and that you would do that by uh, first of all having the individual mandate. Uh, so that there was enough money mm -hmm. from people who weren't sick to cover the people who were, so that later, when the people who are young, they get older, they get coverage. Um, and then the various Medicaid subsidies and other things that were designed to even out care. I mean, right now, if left to itself, what the private markets would do is that they would give all the best coverage to people who are never sick, and they would make sure that people who are sick don't get any coverage at all. And the Republicans... I even heard a congressman say, I don't see why people who are well should ever pay for anybody who's sick. And, you know, <laughs> that blows away the core understanding of equality in this country and the core understanding of insurance. It's a very cruel idea, but that's, that's the depth to which they have sunk. Let me ask you the commitment a Massey administration would make to continuing the Mass Health program. A hundred percent. In fact, it needs to be expanded. Um, what now, about what about if if it loses any type of federal funding? Well, then uh, you know that would be a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. um, with a, how would you, you make know, up for it? Well, honestly, I don't think anybody knows the answer to okay. that. We would. I mean, it's an eight or nine billion dollar hole mm -hmm. in a forty billion dollar budget. Mm -hmm. So that's immense. And I think at that point we would have to, you know. Uh, the, uh, the governor could lead uh, what would be an emergency process of saying, okay, well, back to square one. How are we going to do this? It, there's no question it would cost the people of Massachusetts a lot more money, uh, and that's something we want to do everything we can to avoid. On the other hand, uh, 
we should not use the system we have today to keep us from working towards a much better system where you would lower those administrative costs and you'd allow people to have better care at lower costs. Right now, we're headed in the opposite direction. Well, then let me ask you, would you trust the legislative leaders we have now? Um, uh, to work with you on your vision? Uh, yes, because in that particular case, it would be an emergency in which hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Massachusetts citizens would be demanding action. So in other words, you would say, you know, it's time that you guys work yeah. for the people as opposed to yourselves as you've been doing all along. Yeah, and let me just say, I'm working with a wide variety of legislative leaders. There's some very good leaders uh, up on Beacon Hill, uh, but they have not been able to uh, take all of their passion and all of their skill and everything they want to do and mobilize it. Let me put it this way. Uh, Beacon Hill is kind of like a pot, and there's all different kinds of ingredients in the pot. But to get what you want, you have to have some heat under the pot that's making things cook. And I think that's, uh, that's what a governor can do by putting the spotlight on a core problem, convening people, inviting people to comment, bringing people into the system. That can help wake up the legislature to do its job, which I think it can do in a crisis. The problem the legislature sometimes has is that it cannot act before it hits a crisis. That's also true on issues like affordable housing, on climate change, where you know people have to wait until it's reached a point that's completely dysfunctional, and then they act. We've got to do a better job of planning for the future. Privatizing the tea, or parts of it, like uh, Charlie Baker seems to want to do. Uh, privatizing uh, is usually presented as something going to save money. It often does not. But as I think if you look at it uh, a little bit more broadly, privatizing is really an ideology that says we oppose anything that's public. Public health, public schools, public parks, public libraries, you know, all the different. In other words, we shouldn't have the government paying for these things. Uh, and that's directly opposed to the Massachusetts tr uh, tradition, the American tradition, where we have recognized that not all of us has the money to be able to, you know, uh, start it off with Ben Franklin. Not everyone has the money to buy a big library. So let's get a public library where people share books. It was an early idea of the sharing economy. Uh, th there are ideologues in Washington who want to eliminate as much as possible uh, thinking that this is wrong. And unfortunately, the governor, uh, who seems like a, a nice guy, uh, is at the same time following these very conservative principles and wanting to privatize uh, at the very moment when, in fact, we need to maintain some of our best uh, public employees and support public schools and do the things that make the difference for people who don't have uh, very high incomes. Did you? Uh, do, I, I just want to ask you, Bob, do you like dogs? I do like dogs. Because we have a dog in the studio today. I don't know if we have a Sasha cam. I think we did. Uh, <laughs> I see her on camera. We have a big bulldog. Brian's bulldog is here. Bull mess. I was going to say, yeah. that does not look like a bulldog. Yeah. It's huge. I, I, yeah, it's so big, I got scared uh, when I first met. That yeah. is a big dog. Yeah. Um, big star of the day. Yeah. As people are noticing on uh, on the Facebook. I just want to tell if you won't mind, I want to tell you a little bit more about my background. Because I think one of the things that people always say is, you know, who are you? What have you done? How, we can, how can we trust you? How do we know you've really been committed to these things? Those are all fair questions. Uh, I, I can't show it to your readers, but I can show it to you. But back in 1980... Wait, you're, on the, you're on camera now. Oh, I am. All right. So maybe I can... Uh, where do I put it? Uh, so people can see it. Anyway, um, I will try to hold it up, but I'll give it to you. There we go. Anyway, this book is called The Big Business Reader, and I was working as a young man for uh, Ralph Nader, and he asked me to do a book on uh, all the different challenges that when business becomes too influential that can happen in a democracy and an economy. So I pulled this thing together. 
uh, and in just a couple of months. And uh, as somebody who's been a, a strong supporter of Bernie uh, Sanders, um, I'm very proud that back in 1980, so 38 years ago, uh, I did this book. And if we just look at the headings, it's the corporation and the consumer, the corporation and labor, the corporation and health, uh, many, many sections, natural resources, community, politics, uh, technology, multinationals, and so forth. And I like to joke that obviously what happened since this book came out before Bernie was mayor of Burlington, that clearly he picked the book up and it changed his life and uh, he read it. And uh, that, that's not true. He was a, a leader at this time writing columns, but he was not yet elected. And so uh, I like to show this to people, even though it's out of print, because it goes back a long way. Um, uh, and shows that I've been working on these things pretty consistently. The other little show and tell here I'd like to do for you is that I also spent a very long time working on issues of uh, racial and economic justice, and I wrote this incredibly long book uh, called Loosing the Bonds, the United States and South Africa in the Apartheid Years. And, um, and that was, in a sense, in the earlier part of my career when I thought I was going to be a scholar of social movements, and then after running for lieutenant governor and being in South Africa in the 90s, uh, I changed to wanting to be an activist, actively pursuing change. Um, but again, this shows, uh, I hope, a deep commitment to the core structural problems of our day. The good news, I just want to say, this isn't all about critique. I mean, there are a lot of things that we could be doing, um, you know, by supporting local business and building different cooperatives and setting up procurement agreements and doing a lot of things that would help move money back to communities, boost wages, establish greater equity, uh, bring things like the cost of housing down. There's a lot of opportunities here. You have to believe in social justice. You have to understand how the economy works. You have to believe in sustainability. These are terms that are not common in the government today. And one of the reasons I'm running is because they are common all over the world. And it's about time the United States and Massachusetts caught up. And we should note that uh, you're a graduate of uh, Princeton University. Uh, yes, as an undergrad. Oh, I'm and on Harvard. one. And, and Harvard. Harvard. <laughs> For your, uh, your Harvard was your master's? Uh, Doctor, what uh, do you got? What <clears throat> tell us all this, uh, this is a little embarrassing. No, wait, you went I to Yale for divinity. Uh, I went. I, so first thing I need to say. Yeah, you went to Yale. Is that my Harvard. my life? <clears throat> excuse me, my life. Uh, I have benefited enormously from the willingness of some very elite institutions to give me scholarships, and I'm proud of that, and I'm grateful for that. The only thing is that there are not that many people who get that privilege, and so. One of the things I'm fighting for is for more people to have the kind of extraordinary uh, experiences that I did, uh, not just getting into elite schools, but of course improving the schools all across the state, our community colleges, what we used to call our state colleges, the UMass system. I mean, education is key to people building a good life for themselves, and we're making it too expensive. But to answer your question, I went to Princeton University. Uh, after that, I got a, a degree in theology from Yale University and went into the ministry. But I was so interested in economic justice that I applied for and got a, a doctorate and scholarship from Harvard Business School, which makes me kind of an unusual person because on the one hand, um, I am very passionate about building uh, a good life for folks, but I also really understand the mechanics of how business and investment and finance and Wall Street work so that when somebody says you can't do that because it's too expensive or it's too this or too that, I can just say, wait, you know, show me the spreadsheet. No, it's not true. So I'm not uh, terrified by some of those fancy numbers and fancy You won't be terms. bowled over. I will not be. And in fact, that's been the key to my 
career. I've, I've worked with uh, major pension funds, uh, brought activists together with pension funds in order to move companies forward on worker rights, labor rights, climate change, energy, water use. And then I was the founder of an international system where you measure corporate accountability. And then I also started a alliance of pension funds on climate change. And these are very big changes that took place that I was privileged to be part of. And one of the reasons that I think I would be a good governor for this state. Excellent. You also ran for Senate, too. <clears throat> so the Correct? story of that. Well, no, I just wanted to ask you. Ran, I, I did. I did. You, what, you what, bought what? out because of, you, you thought Warren was going to. No, no, it was a very simple story. Okay. I, I love politics. Mm -hmm. uh, we had uh, Scott Brown, who mm -hmm. got into that mm -hmm. uh, office, and I felt uh, was not worthy of that position, was not doing a good job. And uh, I love politics. I had my liver transplant. I was feeling much, you know, feeling fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of waiting for somebody to run against him. Uh, our congressional folks didn't. The governor decided not to. And I thought, well, I want to stay primary. Maybe let's see what happens. So I got out and a couple, I mean, joined in and a couple of people were with me. And then uh, Harry Reid uh, down in Washington persuaded Elizabeth Warren to run. And I had known Elizabeth a, a bit. And I had enormous respect for her, and I felt that she was a great candidate. And it's a little bit like professional sports. You know, when, you, when you're playing someone and you, you run into someone who just, you know, in her case, she could raise money at a national level. Mm -hmm. And she was, you know, I thought, okay, good, we have a great candidate. And uh, I stepped down and then went to run the New Economy Coalition. But then this time, uh, I happened to be over um, with my wife on her sabbatical. She's a professor of architecture. And when Trump won, I thought, oh, my God, there goes everything I've worked for for 40 years. Uh, and I wanted to come back and join with people to fight the fight. And I realized that one way I could do that was to join uh, to get into this race. Has Senator Warren lived up to your ex expectations? I think Senator Warren is an extraordinary um, senator. And, uh, uh, you know, there's small things that about timing on this issue or that. But I, I completely support her. And, one of the, and she is one of the reasons that I think a Democrat is going to beat Charlie Baker, and I hope that Democrat will be me. And it's very, very simple math. When Charlie Baker became governor, he won with only 1.1 million votes. That's it. That's not very many. Right. Elizabeth, running in a different year, won with 1.7 million votes. So there are 600,000 voters out there who voted for Elizabeth Warren who probably did not vote for Charlie Baker. Elizabeth Warren is under national attack. And so we think that whoever uh, is the Democratic nominee will be part of this huge tidal wave in which people come out to vote for Elizabeth, and they also pull the lever for the Democratic nominee. And that means that we could get a Democrat in the corner office, and that would open up jobs and renewable energy and focus on uh, you know, criminal justice reform and opioids and the things that we're just not moving fast enough on. Phone number 617-903-7464 if you want to call in. Uh, we have Bob Massey here. He's running for governor of Massachusetts. BobMassey2018.com is well, your website? You. Yes, thank you. M-A-S-S-I-E. So Bob Massey. And we got a number of his books here. You can yep. see. Losing yep. the uh, One is Song of the Night about his life. That's a memoir I wrote a couple years ago. People are really fascinated. <laughs> one a all. memoir of resilience. <laughs> and then Losing the Bonds. It's about money in South Africa. And then uh, you got the other one, the big business reader with, uh, I saw that Ralph Nader introdu introduction. That's, yeah. When was that published? That was published, uh, you know, in 1980. And it oh. was uh, a long time ago. I was, uh, what was I, 22 years old, 23 years old. And um, it was a time when uh, Jimmy Carter was president. And uh, nobody thought that uh, Ronald Reagan would ever be 
uh, elected. And so we were focusing on trying to make sure that the federal government did not fall into the hands of of, uh, big corporate power, which it now has. Now, now, uh, we are uh, actually in the worst possible scenario because we have people like you know, the former head of Exxon running the State Department and, uh, you know, international investment bankers running the Treasury Department and on and on and on. Uh, and so they are just looting the federal government and tra- changing our regulations to favor big business. And that's why we need leadership at the state level uh, to make up for those um, those devastating... Well, don't you think some of them are looting at the state level? I think it's a little different here. I think what happens here... Really? Is, I, do, I do think it's different because I think um, you do have a lot of different... Um, deals and it, it's more a question that it's a small community of elites who all know each other and they all agree more or less on what the problems are and because they don't know the rest of the state and they do not know what's happening uh, they don't care. Um, I know, but how many states have had how many speakers well, that's true. Go through what we've gone through. <clears throat> I'd say quite a few of you. It's, like it's, Jersey. It, and I, I mean, Bob, <laughs> let's be no, serious here. How are you going to fight the systemic corruption of the Massachusetts State House? Um, well, let me just put it this way. There are always temptations. You have to distinguish between people who make their own failures because they take money for some stupid reason or, you know, because they're greedy or whatever. And then a systemic... Because they're criminals. They're, well, that, it's, they commit a you crime. You can say it. Yeah, no, they commit a crime. But the, the, the deeper problem, I think, in the state house is, is that... No, the deeper problem... This is what I want to get to, because I, I agree. Like, Brian wants to focus on those guys that take the money. Well, no, I mean... And, but I, I think it's bigger than that. Well, I think it's what you're going to get to. I, well, I want to hear your answer on that, Bob. What the, is the, so, what, what we have now is we all... And this is true in every legislature. We have people who are pretty happy with the way things are and pretty happy with where they are. I mean, so, you know, things are going okay. I'm in my seat. I don't have to work that hard. And I'm happy to... Uh, it's a disconnect. To, it's a disconnect. You're right. Um, and then you have people who get elected because they really want to see a lot of change, and then they run smack into a system that slows that change down and re- rewards them for, uh, for uh, being obedient to the system. Now, in Massachusetts in particular, we have um, a, uh, a Senate that up until very recently, of course, was run by Stan Rosenberg, who is very progressive and has changed the way the Senate and opened it up and offered leadership. And I think it's a tragedy for the uh, uh, for the Commonwealth that he has had to step down, and we, we will see what happens with that investigation. Wait, On wait, the, wait. I want to hear why it's a tragedy. Because he was a man who believed in sharing power, and that's rare in any legislature. Um, I do have a number of friends. But he couldn't keep a leash on his boyfriend. Dude, I, I, I agree with that. I think, uh, no, Brian, yeah, well, Brian, uh, b- uh, what Bob's saying is correct. Like, he did share, like, even the marijuana thing. I didn't like a lot of the things he was doing, but then he really did, like, let P- Pat Jalen and them really decide. Like, I like I like that. You're, you're right. Well, so. I mean, I get it. Yeah. I get it. Look, uh, I, I think, um, you know, without wanting to comment on a personal situation, but it well, it's, it's gone beyond personal. No, I understand that. But his relationship with his husband—that's a very complicated thing. I don't presume to have any particular view on that. But he would be not the first uh, person in a marriage to be betrayed by their spouse, okay. in one way or the other, and that's always a tragedy. And uh, so, I think the investigation will uh, focus on whether uh, President Rosenberg himself had any knowledge or awareness of this. But even if he didn't, though, shouldn't shouldn't he kind of? Uh the fact that you let it happen. Like, I just, I, I look at my own relationships. It's like, I, w- I wouldn't let it happen. It, well, like, it I just, depends on it, what you knew. And I think yeah. that's always the question. In other words, uh, you know, are you deliberately suppressing knowledge that you have? Because I, I think it? there is something there. Because, you know, in the very beginning, 
he had already said there was a firewall. This that this came up before before the sexual harassment stuff, but you know that the that you know the, the husband was shooting well, his mouth off, saying he controlled things, and there, there was a little scandal there, and he he had a firewall, and the firewall really wasn't there at all. It seems. And like. if you're going to try to tell me Stan didn't know, come well, on. Well, yeah, I mean, let me let me the, tell you instances of. Okay. I have. I'll just tell you my personal view. Okay. I have known Stan Rosenberg for a long time. And uh, I have found him to be an honorable man. Now, what was going on and what he knew and what his relationship with his spouse was and whether with this uh, or that information, I don't know. But I, I have found him to be someone who uh, has deep values, public values. He has uh, uh, fought for those values. And when he was uh, became president, he, he demonstrated those values. So at the public level... I think that, um, uh, but we'll see. You know, I don't know what the well, whole story I'm going to have to disagree with you. That's because, okay. Because Disagreement I mean, is honestly, allowed. Honestly, I, I mean, stealing raises in the middle of the night and then paying off judges so they can't stop you and then Baker throwing his hands up in the air saying, hey, they're veto-proof. What do you want me to do? That was a sleazy, sleazy move by Stan and, and, and Bob DeLeo, and you can't deny it. Well, that's a different issue. That's the pay uh, increase. Yeah, I, I, get, I get it. I like it, Brian, but you did change it. No, no. In uh, any case, the larger point I'm making is that when you have that kind of progressive leadership in the Senate, which I believe Senator... Wait, wait, wait. That's what? not progressive. That's stealing. No, no. Okay, that is. Okay. But they, the, listen, other I, have, issues, I yeah. have... We've had a lot of different Senate presidents who have ruled with different levels of right. direct control. And to see one who was changing the process in the Senate is was something that I think all people and I think progressives welcomed. I well, think he's far point. better than Bob DeLeo. Uh, well, on the, <laughs> would you that say may that? Be. Would you, that, you, that may you be. agree with us but, on that? I, that I think, may be, but Bob, I'm just going to say I've seen many, many ideologues over the years yeah. turn to corruption. Well, as you know, power corrupts. Um, that's why we're supposed to have term limits, and that is something that... Uh, uh, I wish we had more consistently across the state. Anyway, if you had a progressive governor and you had progressive leadership in at least one of the branches of government, you then have essentially a two against, I don't say against, but you have two people pushing for changes and a third person who then needs to figure out how he or she uh, needs to accommodate that. So we'll see. I just have, look, I have worked with people on big projects that people violently disagreed with me. I brought those folks together. We sat down. We found common ground. We were able to make change. Sometimes it involved real pushing. You have to have a backbone. You have to have a direction. You have to have core values that you're not willing to deviate from. Um, but I have been able to persuade people. And in fact, I can tell you some of the people that started off as real enemies on some of the project became supporters. And I'll tell you, when that happens, then you send them out and they're able to persuade other people. So that political process of persuasion and finding that common ground while you're trying to move aggressively toward change is something that I've done. It's not easy, but it can be done. But that you have to start with having uh, a vision of where the state should go based on core values and a willingness to provide leadership and not be worried about who's going to say, uh, oh, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. It should be bringing people together to make great changes. And I have to say, that's the Massachusetts tradition. Uh, you know, one of the things I do on the stump is just remind us uh, that the Kennedys, you know, for all of their complexity, they kept us focused on what were the great challenges that we could meet as citizens of this state and as citizens of this country. And I think that's exactly the kind of uh, attitude we should have now. So I agree on being skeptical. I mean, I agree on being skeptical. But I also believe that you have to maintain this belief that change can come 
if you exercise collective political will. And that, uh, so too often, uh, we see people say, because it's so corrupt, I'm not going to get involved. Right. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's so right. it has, you have to have that balance. Uh, an honesty to see what Do you the think problems. Brian goes too far? Now we're, we're, we're going on Brian here. Well, I don't know. I mean, Brian and I are just getting to know each other. And, right. you know, I've, I've been in his shoes, being right. skeptical and, and being concerned and I, not yeah. wanting to be taken in. I get that. I also think, though, that uh, sometimes, and I'm not saying you do this, Brian, but sometimes progressives can spend a lot of time debating all the things that are wrong and not really build the political power to, to do the things that oh, are right. Oh, I'm a progressive. You're not? All right. <laughs> what are you, Brian? I'm trying to figure I out. I don't have a Are you the union thug? I that, do not that, have that, a label. Uh, I refuse not to have, have okay. one. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let me you're, say. You're just the, uh, you know what you are? You're the cynical bastard. You're the cynical <laughs> Boston bastard that's been around too long, that's seen too much. You just you just know. Too well, much. you know, I don't know what it is. I just uh, I, I think cynicism is self defeating. So um, I and I think often when people are cynical, it's because they do have ideals. They're just fundamentally frustrated and disappointed when those ideals are not being reflected. And you know, I understand that. For me, that means I want to jump in and you know uh, do the things that people need: good home, school, doctor, job. And good environment. I mean, transportation issues. This whole state is locked down right. because people can't get anywhere. So, how do we fix that? Like, I, I like what you said about the whole cynicism thing, yeah. uh, optimism, yeah. the, the balance. Because that's yeah. where I think it lies. The balance. I really think it's a balance. Uh, you got to have both. You got to be a little cynical, but you got to have some optimism too. Because, like you said, group collected effort can make a difference. I've seen it happen so many times. But you got to have some cynicism. Well, uh, let, but, if you but don't I want to get back to right. again uh, to transport. <laughs> I'm just saying I agree with you. But yeah, yeah. transportation, because that is a big issue. Uh, I, I, it affects my life. Yeah. Um, every time I come to the station now, like uh, pretty much I'm okay because I live and work in Marblehead now. Yeah. Oh wow! So I'm locked out, but. I remember commuting, and I remember even commuting from one end of the Cambridge to, to another. That's bad enough. But when you're commuting from the North Shore or the South Shore into the city every day for work, how do we fix this issue of transportation well, in Boston, Cambridge, Somerville, and Massachusetts? It's a mess. How do we fix it? Well, I mean, the number one thing you have to do is decide you're going to fix it. And that means that you say, okay, 10 years from now, here's what we want. We want to have a system that connects all of the cities the gateway cities, Boston, all the different regions by rail so that you can move around within the state without having to have a car on a scheduled public transportation and that allows people with not to have to have enough money to own a car but to, to be able to move back and forth. I mean, having better transportation, just to give you one example, between uh, an area like the uh, area around Worcester and Boston, if you could reduce that commute from 90 minutes to 40 minutes, then the affordable housing around Worcester would become available to uh, people in Boston and vice versa. That's in the sense right. that we a know, lot of people are already moving to Worcester and commuting. They to are, Boston. but I it's a very happening. long way it on is. that train. Um, and uh, but right now we have uh, communities that have jobs and no housing, and communities that have housing and no jobs. And you need to bring that together. Uh, everywhere I go, I've been in 160 communities. I've talked about 13,000 people in small groups, and everybody says. We are trapped, whether it's the North Shore, not able to come down. When I go to the South Coast area, it takes me an hour and a half, an hour and 40 minutes to go 40 miles. Yeah, for me, uh, it's a Marblehead to, to Brighton is what, like 20 something miles? Minutes. No, it's not even that. It's like 20 something miles. It's not, it's, not it's, a, it's an hour, yeah, it easy. It, it, it's so, an hour and sometimes an hour and a half, depending so, on the track. So we need, uh, you know, we need higher speed, ultimately high speed rail. 
between Boston and Albany with stops in Worcester and Springfield. Um, listen, this is not rocket science. The Chinese have built uh, 12,000 miles of high-speed rail over the last 10 years. We built zero miles. How do we afford all that? The very Mass has all this financial issues right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, How do we they, afford but, all uh, this? So the, the, the cost of something is always an important question to ask, but it's not necessarily the first question. The first question is, what do we want and what would we gain from that? If we could lower commuting times, improve the local economies, the economies of the gateway cities, open up new areas for uh, housing, open up new job possibilities, if you could rescue Western Mass, which is in a downward demographic spiral because they don't even have decent internet, they don't have good, uh, they, they're, they're, if you could open that up, you would create a flourishing economy. So you have to ask, what is it we want? What would we gain from having that? What would we lose if we don't do it? Because that's another problem. If we just let this go, we're going to end up incurring more and more and more expenses. And then you ask the question, it, does it make sense to invest the fill in the blank? Maybe it's $10 billion, maybe it's $20 billion over 20 years. Now look, that's what governments do. That's what governors do. A woman down in Yarmouth told me the role of a governor is to look into the future and see the problems that are coming and help us to prepare. We know transportation is a problem. We know that artificial intelligence is going to be blowing away lower wage jobs right at the moment when we need more of them. So driverless cars, all those folks, any of you out there listening who drive for Uber or Lyft to earn a little extra money, Uber and Lyft are trying to get rid of you. And they just want to have driverless what, cars. What, you, what would you do about that? Because that's going to get rid of a lot of jobs, not just we Uber and Lyft, have, but just well, all drivers. Here, here's an interesting thing. We are seeing that this is going to impact not you know, not just drivers or truck drivers, but every industry. There, uh, Every single major company in the country now is trying to figure out how to use artificial intelligence AI. to get rid of workers. Right. Now, look, there's many good things about AI in the sense that it can help doctors and many other things. But we Do you think need, it's dangerous, uh, like Elon Musk does? Well, we, we need a commission right now on the future of work. And one of the things that happened as an interesting story about Sweden. Sweden is embracing AI because what they say is we don't protect jobs, but we do protect workers. And what that means is that if you are kicked out of a job because technology has replaced you, there is a pathway for a, quote, just transition that enables you to uh, get into something new. And also because you get health insurance no matter what job you have, you have a retirement plan no matter what job you have, you have essentially portable benefits in Sweden, which we need uh, more of here, then you don't mind necessarily if your job goes away because you get another job that has the similar benefits, might have a slightly different salary. Here, you lose a job, you lose those benefits, you lose uh, that health care, you, you lose, lose the retirement, you lose everything. And so, uh, and so sometimes, that, so it doesn't mean that we try to prop up dying industries. What it means is that we have a dynamic system that protects people, protects workers as they move from industry to industry. And that means we also have to have a lifelong educational system. So let's say you don't know how to code and you want to get a job where you need to learn how to code, <laughs> you're going to find a way to, and, and there are these things popping up. That sounds good, but I, I just go back to... Uh what if not? Like some people are never going to be able to code. Some no, no, people I, are I'm never going to be able example. to. I'm just wondering though, because this is going to become an issue. I feel like too with technology, 
is that no matter how much you train somebody, some people just aren't going to be able to keep up with this because it's really, you need ever-increasing, I think, IQ and, and knowledge and information. And once you learn it sometimes, it's already outdated. Something else has already replaced it, and you need to go to school now for that next thing. Um, well, I can just... How do we fix that yeah, when but, people are going to be left well, behind first of all, and not be able to be trained? Because I hear training yeah, all no, the time. No, no, I, I agree with you. That's often just a word that's thrown out there. I didn't mean to use it. No, I know, but of, I'm just... But yeah. look... Economies change, and they change rapidly. New technologies come in, job definitions change, and that's why young people, millennials right now, are facing a very difficult financial future because there are not those permanent jobs where you can build up uh, you know, equity or you can build up a long-term uh, progress. I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, the, the numbers are incredible, but as much as 35% of the national economy is made up of gig economy jobs and people piling together different kinds of things, uh, that's a way of kind of wiring a living together, but it's not where you can build a career, support a family, build you know, uh, some long-term retirement savings. Uh, so what we're doing is that all of those things are going to the people at the top, and they're the ones making decisions. The people at the bottom are uh, getting hammered because the system really is rigged against them, but then unfortunately often they don't vote. So one of the things that we have to figure out for this election is how to get the people who understand that the economy is upside down and who understand that, the, um, uh, that at a larger scale, you know, the planet is in real trouble, how do they come out and vote? How do millennials vote? How do people of, of color and uh, low-income communities come out and vote for their interests and for the kind of change that would help them? Too often, uh, because money uh, politics is dominated by money, and money comes from uh, wealthy people, the agenda is very limited. And I'll just say, as I respect and appreciate my colleagues in this race, but if you talk to them about what is they're going to do, they'll give you a checklist of things they're not going to talk about, the structural problems of the economy, how capitalism itself has to change, how investment patterns have to change, how wages have to change. Those are much deeper questions. They're not check-the-box liberal issues, and I think that's one of the things I bring, is a very deep understanding of how we need to evolve. These are not bad things. These are good things. But to be able to obtain those good things, you need a, a leader who knows how to get those things done and who has a clear understanding of what needs to be done. Bob, yeah, we're the Young Jerks. We're here every Saturday at 6 p.m. Uh, we kept Bob very long. It's... Uh, over an hour at this oh, point. Oh, I thought we were going to breakfast. Right? Yeah, you're, you're, you're <laughs> going to torture Bob right now. Right? No, 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 no. I, just, I was going to ask him about his Our Revolution pin. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. Are you going to tease him? No. You don't, do you like Our Revolution at no, this point? You don't. No, not a fan. You believe he, he doesn't like him. Well, well Bob, I'm just to that, to your previous point, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's been major criticism, as you know of our revolution and, and the Bernie movement in general mm -hmm. and their lack of outreach to the black community. Mm -hmm. And as we just saw with the Doug Jones victory, that was primarily in part due to the black women vote. Right. I'm going to ask you, how do you solve that issue of the our revolution people and, and their it, outreach and to the black it, community. Do you think it helped our revolution mass that they didn't endorse Tito Jackson? Yes, too? that's that's the other that's question. That's another locally. Yeah. They, they chose to stay out of it. Well, uh, I mean, how, how could you turn your back on a client, on a, on a, on a politician like Tito? Let me, let me explain. I am someone who has fought for many of the same things as, uh, as Senator Sanders has. Mm -hmm. And when he first started running, I had the view that a lot of people did, 
uh, gee, uh, he's a passionate person, but I'm, I'm not sure he can win. As he kept going, I realized I don't really care if he can win. He represents uh, the kind of values and the kind of change that I think that we need. And uh, so I decided to vote for him and support him. Now, for our revolution, as which is filled with passionate people, and uh, I think people who are sensitive to the question that you raised, mm-hmm. um, uh, they have a, a long way to go in terms of getting their, uh, themselves organized. And there's a very interesting question about this particular race, because there are some that I know are very passionately supporting me, and I appreciate that. There are others who think, well, and it's sort of funny coming from folks who are supporting Bernie, I'm not really sure he can win, so maybe we should put our energy somewhere else. Right. So I'm hoping that people will say, look, Deval Patrick came out of nowhere and won, Maura Healy came out of nowhere and won. Uh, this guy, I'll tell you, in 2004, I was at the Democratic State Convention. At the time, I was having trouble with my liver, so I decided I had to skip a night. And the night I chose to skip was the night this uh, state senator that no one had ever heard of got up and gave a speech. And so, because I'd never heard of him, I missed being in the fourth row for one of the great speeches of the 21st century. Uh, because, and then Barack Obama came out of nowhere. So we are, if people decide that they're going to support the ideas and then the person who represents those ideas, miraculous things can happen in American <coughs> politics. That's what, and I think that our revolution is a positive force. But I have to say, in my own case, right before I ran for uh, governor, I was running a program at UMass Boston called the Sustainable Solutions Lab, and we work very intensively with uh, low-income communities, communities of color, who are going to get hammered by climate change. Um, East Boston, 40,000 Hispanic people, that's going to be underwater. Uh, parts of Roxbury, Mattapan, Dorchester, uh, and but the, many of those communities have to focus on the urgent problems of today. Yeah, I would think, you, you know, we were hoping to have Monica Cannon in here. She would have, I, well, know, I know what Monica would but let, let We me, have bigger issues to worry about right now. Well, no, but the thing is, the goal was to bring these communities together so that they were in alliance rather than in competition. So that, uh, so that everything we do to prepare ourselves for climate actually helps provide jobs and economic resilience, and everything we do on economic resilience helps uh, the communities get uh, oh, stronger. In there. I mean, so that, that, that so makes the sense, because when you said earlier, it's it just like the cannabis issue, it's the same issue. It's like, well, this is a great opportunity to create jobs, exactly. equity for people who need them, who, who, who really deserve those jobs, not some out-of-state billionaire from Colorado or California uh, teaming up with some uh, money managed billionaires from New York or Boston. That's what's pretty much happened here. With you know, Mike, I, I, I just really want to, uh, I know we're wrapping up, but yeah. I, I just want to say this is one of the things that, you know, gets me up and fired up and out the door because on the one hand, I want to wake people up that we have real challenges. We cannot afford the time to ignore them. Uh, we need to get started on solving them today. On the other hand, I also want to wake up people up to their incredible opportunities that we are blowing right and left because we don't have the vision and the desire to make real change. So I think I re- I'm a candidate who represents that uh, vision and desire to make real change. We'll see how I do. I'm uh, drawing in a lot of great people, and uh, you know, I want to say to those who might want to help out, please go on the website, please come by our headquarters, which is in Somerville, and we are building a... And it's fun. I just want to say that it, it's a very serious business, but it's also fun business because you get to work with very passionate people, and I know there are a lot of them out there. Are you still uh, working with Joe Trippi? I am. Uh, Joe Trippi, who helped win that Doug Jones race, is my uh, and media Seth advisor. Moulton. What's that? And Seth Moulton. And, well, he, he works. He has several... 
clients. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, um, I appreciate his help a great deal. I also work with Celinda Lake, who's one of the top holsters in Washington. So even though I don't have as much money as my opponents, I think I have tremendous momentum, and I'm excited about that. You're definitely a serious campaign, serious challenger. Bob Massey, 2018. It's M-A-S-S-I-E. Uh, that's the website, bobmassey2018.com. You can read all about Bob and his whole story. He's got it all there. Uh, the issues he cares about as well. Check it out. He, he's got a, I mean, Alex Beam was really talking you up. Do you like, I mean, what do you think about Alex Beam? Well, let me tell you something. Alex, Alex Beam. Beam except think, for that last line. No, no, I'll, no, I'll no, never no, get no, over no, that no, last no, line. I agree. That's that. why we don't like Alex Beam. No, no. I mean, for the, anyone who hasn't like heard, that. Alex Beam did a great piece on, on Bob here, and except for the last line where he said, I'm still voting for Charlie Baker. He, said, but he, did, a great he guy. did the same thing on uh, WGBH, too. On, <laughs> well, on let, Boston let, let, me, let me just say, I've known Alex a long time because my parents wrote books about Russia, and not many people remember that. That Alex's father was actually an ambassador to Russia, so I've known him since we were much younger men. And he's his approach is to want to be out there criticizing and stirring things up. And I don't always appreciate his tone by a long shot, but we are friends, and we did meet. And he told me he probably was going to vote. I said, "Well, you do whatever you like, but you know me, and 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 he's known me for you know all the way back to when I was in ministry. So I appreciated that he was willing to write something. And I'm just going to work hard to change his vote. Right? Yeah, that's what I say. Do you think you can flip him? I do. I do think so. And in fact, a lot of those those. Uh, Baker voters out there, I hope you'll take a close look because uh, I think we could do better. I do too. Uh, definitely, I think they should take a look. <laughs> Even Alex Beam, uh, Alex Beam too. Like he almost like if you listen to the BPR, like I do. I'm driving around picking up dogs, and I'm a dog walker by day, and uh, he takes himself uh, like as a joke too, doesn't he? Kind of. Yeah, well, he's kind I of mean, a joke. It, it, I'm gonna call him a he, joke. He's Bron a smart joke, but <laughs> Brian, he's a little bit in well, like you in the sense. Uh, yeah, he, yeah. No, no, I'm saying okay, to you, okay, Brian, he's a little bit like you in the sense that he's just very skeptical, and he's yeah. seen a lot of BS, um, and he wants to call it, you know, and I think there's a role for that. You know, I think he models himself on the old columnist, H.L. Mencken, who, you know, uh -huh. went after everybody. Um, that's, you know, I'm the optimist. He's a little bit more of the cynic, but he's, he's a good guy, and I think he does do some of this a little tongue-in-cheek. But anyway... Thank you for the opportunity, thank and you for let being me know. Here, we'll, come, we'll come back and no, take on some other, other other big problems, but thank you. Yeah, we're the Young Jerks. Uh, I, you know, we're going to take a break here, but uh, as usual, Herbie's... I, I'm really concerned about Herbie. Oh, there he is. He, he's right there. They overwork him in the studio. He's like, going half the show, and half the show he's coughing every single week. I keep telling him about this cough, but it's like sounds like you're dying, Herb. I, I really think you need to. You're one of these guys that doesn't have. You're not going to the doctor. What do about health care? Yeah, I was going to say you have mass healthcare? health. Mass yeah, you, yeah, I do. Yeah. You just don't go because you're always working. Yeah. You work every single day, don't you? Yeah. Like you're like me. You don't have time to go to the doctor. Nope. Yeah. Uh, it's me. I have a medical issue today too, and I just decided I'm coming in because I got Bob Massey here. There you go. And you've been like. Bob, people have been asking you, are you okay? Because you've been kind of physically, they want to make sure you're... I, listen, I have a little trouble with arthritis. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, uh, you know, it's just in my ankles. And sometimes I walk with a cane with its icy out there. And sometimes I have a little bit of a limp because when I stand up, uh, you know, the arthritis is, reminds me that it's there. But honestly, I've been campaigning, you know, 12 hours a day, six, seven days a week since last April. And I'm having a blast and I feel great. And uh, so, and, and I can understand, you know, people think I went through the, all this stuff. I just want to say, I'm in great shape now. 
And um, I frankly think the things I've been through make me stronger, make me more committed, make me more compassionate and a better leader because, you know, I know we don't have that much time and we got to focus on the things that really matter. Awesome. Thank you for coming in again. Bob Massey, 2018.com is the website. What's your Twitter handle, Bob? I'm sorry? What's your Twitter handle? Bob Mass. Okay. At Bob Mass. M-A-S-S? Just M-A-S-S. Like Massachusetts. Yep. Like Bob Mass. I'm sorry. We've run out of them. But next time I'll bring, we have caps and shirts that say, I'm from Massachusetts. Awesome. And when you come in again, I always take swag. Next time you come in, you're coming in again. Whenever you invite me, I'll be back. Because usually, i got to tell you, like, this is like, uh, we did this a couple of weeks ago too, Brian, but usually we have, our show is usually, there's usually some people of color here or even some women. It's now, it's like three white dudes today. Yeah, like, I kind of was surprised kind of when I walked in. It's anti-white Three old white dudes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're not the Young Jerks as much. Pale, male, and stale. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah, no, someone asked me this week, if it's the Young Jerks, then what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is the Young Jerks Trump style, but we're not really with Trump. No, I'm the old jerk. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, all right, I, you know what? I'm wondering if there's any feedback today, because I... I didn't see people, a lot of people watching at first. Now I see a lot of people watching. Herbie wants me to look on the screen. I can't see it from here, Herb. My eyes aren't that good. I'm looking oh, wow. at my little phone. Uh, someone said, where is he running for? He's running for Massachusetts Governor Madeline. So she wanted to know that. Uh, I'm trying to read if there's any. We can't wait for our reps to make it affordable. Yeah, it's still good. Call talking about. Uh, just read if there's any other comments here for... Uh, I guess not. You know what? Warren Lynch is mad. He wanted to come in today because uh, Monica couldn't make it in. And, and you have like a, a, our revolution pin on. So. Yeah, and he wishes he could be here instead. He, he Sometimes he sits in on the show. I'm sorry, Warren, if we had known earlier. But, uh, yeah, Monica, yeah, we didn't know Bob was wearing a pin. Monica a had pin. to cancel last minute. So, uh, well, yeah. uh, listen, I, I'm happy to come back, and we'll get some of your other regulars on here. Yeah, next time we'll have this, Warren in come in. There's plenty more stuff Because you are wearing his pin. Well, that, that, that's like basically next time we have to have Warren in because Warren will probably kiss him. Like, <laughs> Warren will probably bow down and be like, Bob, thank you so much for our revolution. You would definitely air your day. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, you yeah. know, I had a lot of time sitting around as a kid. I'll tell you something. I watched Dick Van Dyke the other night on the internet. Yes. I realized because I was a kid, home sick a lot, so I I realized I'd watched every single Dick Van Dyke. Show. Really? Wow, that's like the Brady Bunch. Yeah, movie. yeah, I think I watched oh, them too. Wow. Yeah. Rosemary, then Rosemary, '94. God bless her. That's why I went on. Let's yeah. All right, guys. so so next time you get to you get the uh, Warren treatment where he'll be giving you a back. Yeah, we'll have a Bernie Bruin. You had to deal with the pit bull, Brian, and, and his We're dog good. over here We're first. Right, you got through that. Next time yeah. it'll be love. But let's talk more about you know uh, these issues of race and I mean these core. things. Things yes, that we definitely. Really need. Yeah, no, I'm, we, I'm. We will definitely bring in the hood next time. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. All right. All right. Well, I appreciate it again. Uh, I think we're gonna wrap it up. We're gonna go home. Herbie's dying. I, we got nothing else today, right? No, no. we're good. We're good. We're, we're gonna go home. We're gonna go. Seven twenty-five. Yeah. So, were we, when were we gonna sing? Happy birthday? What? No, what are you singing? No, what are we singing? We're going to smoke Next, a joint with Bob. Bob. You know oh, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know if we smoked weed. We'll find out. We'll find out shortly. We do, though. We'll be smoking weed. Brian and I will. I'll bring, I'll bring in my five-string banjo. And okay. There you go. We'll, there you go. We'll start a band. Okay. All right. So we'll we'll see you next week, maybe Saturday. <laughs> Either way, we'll see you on Saturday at 6 p.m. here. The Young Jerks, WEMF Radio. See you soon. Thanks, Mike Crawford. Thank Herbie. Thank Brian Richo here. Thank and you, uh, again, thank you for uh, Bob Massey for governor. He's running for governor of Massachusetts, thank you, thank for coming you. in and, and taking our taking crap. our shit. Yeah, thank you. Okay.
Bye. Candy Care Docs, compassionate, compliant, confidential. They say he is a monster, dear old Mr. Green. W-E-M-F.